Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction. We were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. In December, we did a series of podcasts on best-selling author Beth Macy's book, Dope Sick. There was one interview we weren't able to get scheduled until this month. Janine Underwood, a mother from Virginia, was one of the first parents in the region to share the story publicly over her struggle to get her son help after he became addicted to OxyContin, prescribed following an ACL surgery. As we begin, Beth Macy provides an introduction to Janine and her story. Janine runs, she's executive director of the Bradley Free Clinic, which is a clinic for the working poor here. Um, uh, doctors donate their time and it's got a great reputation. And, you know, so she's been working in healthcare administration for some time. And she had a son, Bobby, who um, became addicted, had initially had some sports injuries, just like Jesse, was very similar kind of pattern, you know, gets addicted to the pills and then switches to heroin. Um, he actually was arrested at one point. He was imprisoned, I think for three years um, and was doing really well, got got out and um, had earned a, um, uh, a certification, was working, um, living at home. And, you know, one slip up and he goes back to the same amount that he's using before. And this was at the beginning of when fentanyl first started sort of infecting the supply here. Janine Underwood shares how her son, like so many, started down the path of addiction with an innocent prescription for pain pills. It was actually the spring of his freshman year at college when he had that surgery and he was away at college and it was towards the end of that year. Um, and he was prescribed a 90-day supply of OxyContin. And that was in 2007. Back in 2007, 2006, 2007, there was no there was no talk about OxyContin. I think that's, it was shortly after that I had heard some talk about OxyContin in like the West Virginia area. Um, and he was actually at school in school in West Virginia. Um, but I didn't know, I mean, it was pain medication and, um, you know, I didn't really know anything about OxyContin. Um, so that summer he came home and he, um, he was rehabbing from his surgery, and and I had no idea. I had no idea that he was becoming addicted to the pain medication. He went back to college that fall, so I didn't know. Um, it was six months later. It was the spring of his sophomore year that you know he dropped out of school. Uh, he was, you know, he had anxiety and he and depression and. He was failing his classes, and I, I still didn't know what was happening. I didn't know that the pain medication and an addiction was uh, taking over his life. I just, I didn't know. So he came home and, you know, got a job, and he's kind of searching to figure out what he's going to do next. 
I started to go to the community college, but I still didn't know what was going on in his life. Um, it was shortly after that that he, he got in trouble with the law, and it was prescription medication. I think his first charge was with um, possession of Xanax. Um, still, I didn't, I didn't put the pieces together. Still, I didn't know what was happening. And before I, it all started spiraling out of control, which was right after he uh, was arrested the first time, um, I, I didn't know how bad it was going to get. Janine, talk with me about the horror of discovering her son was using. This is when I realized that he was addicted to drugs. I um, I went to into his room, and this was probably six months after he had uh, left college. And his first involvement with the law, I opened a box in the back of his closet. And in the box was like a lot of his childhood memories. Um, a baby blanket and a football because he played football in high school. And in the bottom of this box, <laughs> wrapped in his baby blanket, was a box of hypodermic needles. The more we talked, the clearer it became that Janine was really frustrated of having no idea of where to turn for help when her son needed it most. At this point, he was having he was in trouble with the law, so. Um, I was trying to find him uh, treatment facilities to go to. I was completely alone. Um, I, I started looking on the internet to figure out where, you know, uh, making phone calls to facilities, where could he go? I started, I asked a few close friends, but I really felt so isolated and alone and had no idea what to do for my son to get him help. And and he was involved with the police, so he was going to going to be going to jail. Um, you know, it seemed like such a vicious cycle at that point because he would be in jail, then he would um, be released. Um, he'd relapse. He'd um, he was in maybe a thirty day treatment facility that was court ordered, and once or twice, and that was it. But he kept relapsing and it was, we were caught up. And I say we, because, you know, at this point, helping my son was the most important thing in my life, trying to figure out what to do to navigate to, to get him the help he needed. And it is impossible to do that. Um, with the judicial system, you know, he's over 18. They're not going to share information with me. And trying to get him into a treatment facility, they want to talk to him, not me. Um, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure others understand the frustration with not knowing who to turn to. Um, nobody will talk to you as a parent. And watching your son just, his whole life just spiraled out of control. As strange as it sounds, Janine like actually a lot of other parents, had a sense of relief knowing that her son was behind bars and he was safe. And, you know, that's the first time I saw my son actually return to the person I once knew. I mean, it, he wasn't, I didn't have that stone, 
I'd look at him like when he was addicted and it would be a stone cold look in his eyes. And when I'd go visit him in, in prison, you know, he was um, clean. Uh, he was learning a trade. He learned to be um, an electrician and learned heating and air conditioning. So he got his journeyman's license in prison. And he was a smart kid. You know, that's when I'd go visit him, I, I could see that warm, smiling face and, you know, the light in his eyes return. And, you know, he, he, was, he was Bobby again. Um, and, and I hate to say it, but I feel like, um, and I'm sure a lot of parents feel this way, that prison was the best, safest place for him and the best place for him to be. So he had his journeyman's license and his certification in heating and air conditioning. And, of course, I, I can't begin to tell you how afraid I was for him when he came home because he was scared of being integrated back into society. He was, you know, there was this, um, he was in a safe place when he was in prison. And now he's on his own back in the real world. And, you know, he told me, he's, he's like, you know, I'm not going to screw up again, Mom. I've been, giving, been given a second chance. And, and he, he tried so hard. Um, he got a job, which is, I'm sure you know, is really hard when you have a felony record. Yeah. Um, and I have been to his place of employment and talked to his employer and thanked him for giving Bobby a second chance. And he loved his job and he was integrating back into society and he, he was given a second chance. I was really proud of him. And, and he was so proud of all that he had accomplished. So he had been here, been home for a few months um, and several months and working his job and, you know, planning to, um, to go visit an old girlfriend of his and, and really happy and um, really starting his life over. And it seemed like it all fell apart in the matter of a few days. Um, some acquaintances from his past um, reconnected with him and he reconnected with them and it happened so quickly. It was in the, uh, it, it was over a, a weekend in, in June and that Friday night he went out with friends and that, and that Saturday morning, um, I had left with my daughter to go to, um, uh, softball tournament. We were at the softball field all day and all evening. And, uh, it was one of those, one of those long days, <laughs> um, and but I didn't think anything of it. I, I was a little worried about Bobby going out with his friends that night. Um, uh, I didn't know exactly who he was going out with. Um, but the next day, uh, when my daughter and I returned to the house from softball, oh my gosh, it was so terrifying. Um, the lights were all on in the house and it was, uh, the door was kind of wide open and the TV was on upstairs and, uh, I went downstairs 
and I saw the bathroom door closed and I started to, you know, I was like, Bobby, we're home. And I turned around and could see the door of his room um, open and saw him laying on the floor in his bedroom and ran to him and his body was cold and blue. Um, And all I could do was scream and no, no, this couldn't be happening. And yet he lay there. After the loss of her son, Janine talks about how faith in God has given her the strength to help others. I feel like everything that's happened since Bobby died has been a part of God's plan. I just, I feel like um, by reaching out to people in the community and telling Bobby's story and educating other parents because, you know, the I didn't know what I didn't know, I want other parents to know and be aware of. Um, And it's brought so many people into my life that need help. It helps me every day to know that the person walking through the door at the HOPE initiative that we started two and a half years ago um, is going to be given hope, hope that, that I didn't have. Um, I didn't know what to do for my son. So Janine and others in the community founded the Roanoke Valley Hope Initiative. And its mission is to provide a gateway to professional resources for those that need it most. Well, so Bobby died in June of 2015. And um, three months after that, it's kind of it's kind of crazy when I think about for those three months, I felt like I was so alone. Um, I felt ashamed of what had happened. I felt like I couldn't speak out to anybody or reach out to anyone. And, you know, when I got involved with the HOPE initiative, it was because I first found out about the Addiction Policy Forum in Washington. They were having a rally. Um, and I went up there in October. And I think that's when I was first my eyes were first open to the fact that I was not alone. This is happening to thousands of families across the country, and it was a national epidemic. And I didn't know that. I mean, after my son died, the the very first article in the paper about uh, the word fentanyl uh, was referencing my son's death. And uh, the article in the paper said, um, you know, there were four deaths that weekend here in the Roanoke Valley, and um, one of the four kids that died uh, lived in lived in the county, and the others in the city. and And it referenced fentanyl. The most important thing about the Hope Initiative has been finding a, a network of resources, places for people to go for treatment in a timely manner. Yes. Yes, in a timely manner. So we had we had the hospital systems, we had treatment and recovery agencies and law enforcement. Um, you know, we had individuals as well that just wanted to be volunteer angels uh, that would sit down with uh, someone that comes that comes into the program and 
uh, find out, you know, what is their, what are they looking for? Kind of match them to the type of treatment or recovery program they need. It's been very successful. I've just, I've been amazed at the volunteer network and I've been amazed at all that we've been able to accomplish in, with the HOPE initiative. We put together, um, it's, I guess, 30-page directory of facilities in, in Virginia, in North Carolina, in different states. Um, we access, um, part of our network is accessing agencies like American Addiction Centers, you know, if somebody does have um, uh, insurance or looking at uh, facilities that take Medicaid, um, we have everything in this directory. And I, I realized that nothing like that really exists. Janine talked about the collaborative effort in their community to identify and address the gaps in treatment. We could see the gaps in services. You know, whether it's an individual uh, getting out of prison or getting out of jail and there's no support system for them. You know, we, you know, we started seeing all these different gaps in what was happening. So we brought everyone together, all these agencies together, um, to create a collective response. Um, and we're currently mapping all of those, all of our assets, all of what we, the resources we do have and looking at where the gaps in services are. That has been remarkable. And I can't begin to tell you how many people have, agencies have come together to try to figure out how to come up with an action plan, a, a community-wide action plan to, to help those individuals and to figure this out. The HOPE initiative has established a strong track record of placing people in treatment. Janine speaks to that. To date, uh, we've had 250, over 250 individuals that have come into the HOPE initiative. Um, we have been able to uh, match them to 94% of them to a treatment option. So it's a place for them to go. It's a place to give them hope to get better. 99% of them, the individuals, have actually um, gone into the treatment, um, and it could be detox, it could be long-term inpatient treatment, it could be short-term outpatient, it could be medicated-assisted treatment, it could be housing, transitional housing, um, it could be aftercare. It's, we have a lot of different, different options, um, and it's remarkable to see how, this, how we can link someone to, um, and follow them through from start to finish or really getting them to where they need to be. Um, we have an individual um, that came in recently. Um, she's 30 years old. Um, she's been addicted um, since she was 15. Uh, it's poly drug use. Um, uh, both of her parents um, died from overdoses. Um, and she's pretty much doesn't have any family and, um, or very few family resources. Um, but we're able to, to kind of be with her every step of the way, um, to first get her into detox and to go visit her at, at detox, in detox while she's there 
and sit down with her and tell her some options of places for her that she could go. Um, we don't have a lot of long-term treatment facilities in Virginia, um, not that are free, and that is the most difficult thing is finding someplace um, to go that, that is, if you don't have insurance. So we were able to get her from detox um, and have them keep her there long enough to um, make the transition to a treatment facility, and it's a 12-month treatment facility. Um, we were able to help her with, like, she didn't have any ID. So we, we worked with um, the local government offices and worked with her on, on, on getting some, some ID, a form of ID that she would need to be able to, whatever she needed to do, she's going to need ID for. Um, we actually had some transitional housing for her. In the meantime, we were able to provide some overnight stay at the rescue mission um, before we got her into detox. Um, and every step of the way, we were there for her. How's she doing today? Well, she's in the 12-month facility. She's been there for three months, and um, it's out of state. Uh, but we were able to, to get her on, get her a bus ticket. And um, they picked her up, the facility picked her up at the bus station, and we were in constant communication getting her from point A to point B, and um, we check on her, and she's doing great. She's doing great. We have so many stories that are like that um, and are even a lot more complicated. Um, it's, It's just amazing that and I think that, that they feel this way as well, that there really isn't anybody out there that's gonna, that is going to be there for them every step of the way. If you go to one agency and let's say you go into a treatment facility and you walk out the door, there's, there's no support system after that. There's no place to go. But we're there. And I think that the individuals that come into the HOPE initiative know that, that even if they do leave, as you know, it's it's a lot of individuals are really afraid of of going through withdrawal, and some they're scared of the treatment facility, and um, and sometimes they leave, but they come right back to the Hope Initiative, and and then we get them to where they need to be. Um, that's happened a lot too. So it's not like we've we don't shut the door on them once they. We get them to a facility and we don't, we follow up with them to see that they're doing okay and just that they know that we're here um, to help them navigate a very difficult system. Over the course of the last three years, you've learned a tremendous amount. You've um, helped hundreds of people. You were with your son for seven years as he battled heroin addiction. Uh, this is kind of a difficult question, but um, I, I think it's important for other parents and families out there. So knowing what you know, if you had it to do all over again, what would you do differently? Oh, wow. Knowing what I know now, um, if it was, if what's happening now, the awareness and the places like the Hope Initiative, if that was happening then, I would have had someone to reach out to. I, I would have had someone 
that could help both myself and my son. I also, addiction, I didn't understand addiction. I didn't understand that it's a disease. It's not a moral failing. And I think throughout my son's addiction, I was always there to support him, um, not enable him, but support him and make sure he knew he was loved. But I still didn't understand why he would choose to hurt himself and hurt his family. I didn't understand that. I understand more now about what happened to his brain and that the drugs just took over his brain. And and the kid that I was looking at that stole my credit cards and I would look look him in the eye and be crying and saying, why did you do this? And he would have no response. I would have understood, I would have understood more about what was happening to him, but that wasn't him. You know, it was the drugs that totally took over his mind and his body. And I mean, I, I would try to get him the help he needed and try to understand, and I would have understood more about addiction. And I wouldn't have been so isolated. I think it's taking a long time to kind of shed that stigma of addiction. Um, but more people are talking about it now. And that then, you know, gosh, 12 years ago. No doubt. Well, it, needless to say, I, I'm a big admirer of your work and your accomplishments, Janine. It's uh, really tremendous, and it's tremendous how you've been able to turn your tragedy into a, a triumph for other families. And I know you've touched many more than just the ones that you know of in your community there. What uh, final words would you have for maybe other families out there and final advice to uh, conclude today's podcast with us? I think I'd like to tell um, other parents, other family members that if this is happening in their family, that they need to be educated on what addiction is and what is happening, what's going on, because, um, and, and to kind of under, it'll help them understand what's happening to their son or daughter or family member. And I, I think it's important to talk about it. It's important to have a support system. Um, for the individuals that are struggling with addiction, they need somebody to reach out to, to talk to. And the family member, uh, if they turn away from them or if they don't understand it, it's, it's going to be, they're, they're on their own. They're going to live this life of addiction in the shadows and, and never get better if they don't have some type of support system, someone that understands um, and someone that will, will help them get help. We've been joined today by Janine Underwood, the executive director of the Bradley Free Clinic, which provides free, high-quality medical, dental, pharmaceutical, and preventative health care services for Roanoke Valley residents in need. Following the tragic loss of her son to overdose, Janine helped found the Roanoke Valley Hope Initiative to connect those struggling with addiction to the resources that they need. The Hope Initiative has touched the lives of hundreds of families throughout their region since its inception three years ago. 
To learn more about the HOPE Initiative, go to bradleyfreeclinic.com. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.